The Tom Woods Show, episode 1180. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you enjoy reading my takedowns of the college crazies, I've got a whole collection of them for you. It's in my free ebook, Sane Space, Libertarian Dispatches from Bizarro America. Check it out at sanespacebook.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Very glad to be joined once again by Guido Holtzman, who is a professor of economics at the University of Angers in France. He is widely published in terms of academic articles and articles for a popular audience. He is known probably most for his book, Mises, The Last Night of Liberalism, because it's such an extraordinary biography of Ludwig von Mises. And it's not just the details of his breakfast habits and things like that, but it really explores the intellectual significance. It's an intellectual history, to my mind, of Mises' various contributions. It situates those contributions in the context of debates happening at the time, and you emerge with a much, much deeper understanding of economics, the history of economic thought, and of Mises' role in all this. So that's that's a great, great contribution. But what we're going to be talking about today is a book that has been unjustly eclipsed by that one, and that is The Ethics of Money Production. And in particular, that book has a chapter on the cultural consequences of fiat money inflation. So I want to talk about that today. What are the consequences for society? I mean, the consequences for government, certainly, but also for just for the way society functions and the expectations that get built in to that inform people's decision making, let's say. These are some of the aspects of the question that tend to be neglected, and Guido treats them in a way that's very systematic and very convincing. So I'm very glad to welcome him back. Guido, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Tom. It's wonderful to be again on your show. Your biography of Mises is a tremendous achievement, yet I fear it means that people will know less about your work the ethics of money production than they otherwise would because they have this huge tome they can read, but they're overlooking such a great work of yours, so important that has helped me to understand both money and monetary policy, but also the ethical questions involved better than anything I've ever read. I can say that without fear of contradiction. Oh, thank you very much. I would like you to first to explain the origins of this book because then when people read it, I think it'll be easier for them to understand why it takes the particular approach that it does. The the book was initially commissioned by the uh, Acton Institute. They had a series on uh, uh, various aspects of the, the market economy, uh, which they wanted to be analyzed from a Christian or Catholic point of view. So I was uh, uh, writing this uh, this manuscript, and then as uh, many of my my products, it turned to be uh, uh, it turned out to be much bigger than it was initially planned. So rather than having uh, eighty pages, it was then two hundred and eighty pages. So then it became too big for them, and they they said. They they, uh, they wanted to cut it. And I uh, d- did not agree. I mean, we didn't have a contract or something like this. It was uh, I mean, I didn't have a formal engagement. Uh, it was just the uh, the idea that I should 
uh, somebody who was right, working in this field write up a short monograph of the sort. So I was not uh, contractually bound by the institute. And I said, well, I mean, you may publish it as it, or uh, if you do not wish it, well, I will not cut it to 80 pages because then I would also have lost the, the copyrights to the, to the rest of the manuscript. So I decided to publish it with uh, somebody else, and this somebody else turned out to be uh, the Mises Institute. So they had no uh, qualms about publishing the, the whole manuscript. And, uh, well, that's how it uh, uh, was published in, uh, in 2008. Uh, the, the book itself was originally written in uh, 2003, 2004, and then I was busy with uh, finishing the, the Mises biography. So it took a while to, to get it finally out, but then 2008 it was on the market. Chapter 13 of this book is, you know, is has an economic dimension, no doubt, but really brings home what all this means for the average person in a way that not a lot of other material does. And I actually recently listened to a presentation you gave on this topic in which you said that very few scholars seem really to have investigated the question of the cultural and, as you say, spiritual legacy of fiat inflation, not to mention the political consequences of it. I'd like to start with a definition, maybe two definitions, fiat money and inflation, and then we'll go from there. Uh, fiat money is uh, money imposed on the economy by the state. Now, in, uh, so that's that's the general definition, right? Uh, fiat money uh, we associate it typically with an immaterial uh, type of money, uh, so, so banknotes, uh, accounting money, and so on, which would be the narrow definition of a fiat money. There are very good reasons why this represents the very essence of fiat money. But in a large sense, any money that the government imposes on the economy. Uh, is is fiat money. So if the government imposes on the money a silver standard or a gold standard, then that too would be fiat money in, a, in the large sense, right? Because it's not freely chosen by the market participants, but uh, enforced on them by um, government uh, power. Now, um, immaterial or dematerialized forms of money, so paper, uh, notes, uh, accounting money, uh, tokens uh, out of unprecious uh, metal, uh, are particularly interesting because they can be uh, multiplied ad libitum, so that is without any limitations by, by the government. And of course, what the government wishes to do is to use money to fill its own um, uh, treasure chest. Right. So that's the whole point of having such a money, uh, that it allows the government to uh, gain access to additional sources of funding that it would not otherwise have. Now, um, culture uh, is uh, can be defined in, in the large sense, and that's how I use the term as the uh, the manner in which we do things that we do. So it's the how, uh, uh, how we do things. Uh, it uh, so it connotes the standards and the values uh, that, that prompt us to go about things in one way rather than in another, right? So, I mean, we can sleep in various ways. We can sleep like the Japanese on, on futon, uh, futons. We can sleep uh, like uh, people in the, the Caribbeans and so on in hammocks. Or we can sleep in our nice American and European beds and so on. So, these are different ways of doing, performing the same thing. We can eat in different ways. We can uh, discuss, talk in different ways. French people have a very different way of leading a discussion than uh, Germans or Americans. And all of this reflects our culture. Uh, 
Now, the culture, uh, of course, um, does not uh, exist in a vacuum, right? If you, if you just look at any given uh, situation, you are born into a culture. It's just uh, so many ways how you do things. It's, it's just there. It doesn't seem to be the, the fruit of any act of volition. But ultimately, of course, culture has a history. So it's, it's a, a current state of a trajectory that reaches far back into the past and has resulted from choices. And these choices uh, always have an economic aspect, which is why economists have the word to say about uh, the origin of culture and especially the modifications of culture. And this is what brought me to, to talk about um, uh, the, the subject in my money book, because definitely the way the monetary system is organized has an impact on how we do speak and uh, think about things. And so this is the, the subject of this chapter 13. All right. I want to ask you something, though, before we go on, just to settle a bit of a, not quite a bet, but an argument I have going with Bob Murphy. We were talking about Bitcoin and discussing whether Bitcoin is fiat money. And I said no, because it's just because it's not, quote, backed by something, unquote, that's not what makes it makes something fiat money. If, if people voluntarily choose to transact in it and there's no coercion involved, then I don't think it is fiat money. So who's right about this? <laughs> well, it always depends on, on the definition. But in the light no, of, no, it doesn't. Uh, yeah, it, it <laughs> yeah, does. Of course yeah, it does. I yeah, know, I know. Yeah, yeah, just, right. just tell me Murphy's wrong. Yeah. That's what I want to hear. <laughs> yeah, so in the light of, my, of the definition that I just gave you, then Bitcoin is not a fiat money. Right, so so clearly, I guess uh, Bob uh, he so he uses a different def definition of fiat money, probably inspired by the translation of uh, Mises' money book. Right, so in uh, uh, the theory of money and, and credit, uh, the German term Zeichengeld is uh, translated as fiat money, which is not fully accurate. Right, is uh, Zeichengeld means literally it's it's a sign money, right? So it's it's a dematerialized money. So dematerialized money can be a free market money, as in the case of uh, Bitcoin, but it can also be a fiat money, as in the case of all other government-sponsored paper monies and so on. All right. Well, I know it obviously depends on definitions. Yeah. But which do you think is the correct definition? Well, I think the def definition that I've just given you is the, is the most useful one. Therefore, I use it. Okay, so therefore but, but, Murphy's wrong. Let's move on yeah, to the next. Yeah, yes, yeah, <laughs> but, by, but by the way, I do not think that Bitcoin is money, right? It's, it's misleading. I, I do not uh, I think that presently it is money. Okay, okay but it, right, it's, but it's, it, it is can an be economic used as a medium good. of exchange. Yeah, it is but an it, economic and, good. And it can be used as a medium of exchange. And in, mm. insofar as it is used as a medium of exchange, mm. it's not fiat. Exactly. That's my point. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Okay, so, all right, that's great. That's so glorious. All right, so now that we've trashed Bob Murphy, let's carry on with the actual subject. Let me run through your chapter yeah. and hit on some of the points you raised. Now, some of these points will not always seem like cultural questions. They may have to do with political culture and the way people think about and form their expectations about political institutions. Mm -hmm. But there are some other factors that you discussed that are cultural, in, according to any definition. But you say, for example, that fiat inflation encourages centralized governments. And then in turn, you note that this runs counter to the way an orderly society ought to be arranged. Hmm. So how is that? Well, uh, governments like any organizations, right, they, they uh, labor under the the principle of increasing uh, costs, right, increasing marginal costs. So the larger is the organization, 
the larger are the efforts that you need to make or the costs that, that are entailed just by keeping the whole thing together. Right. If you have a very large organization, well, then uh, costs are much higher than if you have a small organization. And the, these costs pertain just to the inner organization, so the inner uh, coordination of all the members uh, of this uh, of this thing. Um, if you have a uh, in, in a market economy, well, size is determined by well, costs on the one hand, but also revenue of, on the uh, on the other hand, right? So if uh, revenue is sufficiently uh, high, then a large organization is uh, workable. And this is why we have, for example, very large car companies and why we have the large uh, energy producers and so on. Now, uh, in the case of governments, of course, the uh, this way of analyzing the, the question is... Um, it's not fully appropriate because governments are not operating in a free market, right? So they're imposing themselves. But the problem of cost remains, right? So if you have a, a larger organization, then ceteris paribus, it's less efficient than a smaller organization. Now, uh, if governments can gain an, uh, access to additional funding, such as it comes out of the printing press, then they gain a competitive advantage over other governments that do not share this uh, this privilege. And since uh, money production is typically organized on the national level, so it's the central government uh, that, uh, that produces the money of the economy, this government then becomes larger relative to the regional and local governments than it could otherwise have been. And this is indeed what we observe uh, uh, empirically in the Western world throughout the, the past 200 years in particular, right? So we had um, precious metal uh, standards until uh, the 20th century, until the early 20th century, certainly. And until then, they had, we had a very different balance between central government, uh, regional governments, local governments than we have today. Just think of the, the case of the United States, right? The federal government was extremely small uh, around the year 1900. And one of the reasons was that they didn't have a printing press. As soon as they have um, uh, set up the, the central bank. The central bank, of course, what does it do? It buys uh, federal uh, bonds, right? It buys government bonds. So it doesn't buy bonds of the different states. It buys uh, a bond of the, of the federal state. So this increases the resources of the, the central apparatus and thereby makes that it grows relative to the, uh, the other ones. Now, the other ones are growing as well, right? I mean, so the government grows in general, but within the government, you get get the recomposition, the rebalancing of the different branches of it. All right. I want to move on to, even though you cover things like war and the way inflation helps to finance war and other questions like this, let's get to some things where we see how inflation influences the behavior of ordinary people. We see how it encourages the you know, behavior of governments. But let's see how it now seeps into society. And let's begin with business. You have a section on the business person under fiat inflation. How is the way he looks at business, looks at money, looks at the world affected by living under a, an inflationary fiat regime? The, the most important mechanism that here comes into play is the uh, it goes by the um, excessive role that credit comes to play in a fiat monetary regime. So maybe I should first explain th this mechanism. Right? If you have a, a fiat money uh, system, then of course, uh, it already depends on the question, how is the, the money created? Now, in the um, bank-based systems uh, that we had in the West, uh, fiat money was, or is, is still, 
created in the way of bank credit. Right. So if if you, let's say you have a, you have a printing press, Tom, right? So you you can uh, you're producing banknotes. Now these banknotes can be brought into, into circulation and they can be uh, brought under the control of the government in different ways. One very simple way would simply be to to print it and then just uh, fill a, a truck with the, the freshly printed banknotes and send them over to the Ministry of Finance, right? So the Treasury Department, and that's actually how it, it was very often uh, done in the past. The French revolutionaries, when they set up their assignats, they had precisely such a setup, right? So they produced the the, the banknotes called assignats, and uh, they were uh, directly at the disposition of the the Ministry of Finance, which then went on to spend it as, as they thought fit. And therefore, uh, some people also think that as soon as you have a fiat money uh, system in place, you really don't need taxation anymore because the government can simply print all the money that it would ever need. Now, uh, this is for various reasons. This is not how we we go about this today. The way we bring money uh, to the in, under the control of the government and uh, we bring it into its circulation is via credit. Now, this is very interesting. Uh, the, the the main motivation that brought this about is not um, some uh, sinister uh, plot by the government to get people into debt, but quite to the contrary, it was a concern of the classical liberals in the 19th century, who uh, many of whom resisted the introduction of central banks, but they say, well, we have to limit this incredible power that comes with such a centralized banking institution. And then also with the creation of fiat money, we have to limit this somehow. And the limitation that they came up with was a limitation, as they thought, by the market, uh, namely that uh, the central bank should have the right to create money, but only in the way of credit, that is, uh, the limitation that that comes into play is that the bank, the central bank, cannot unilaterally uh, create new money. It needs at least one partner. It needs somebody who wants to go into debt. Now, uh, of course, that can be uh, the government itself, right, uh, or it can be in the private sector. So, if uh, companies uh, or private households uh, want, want to go into more debt, then well, you are allowed to uh, hand out. Uh, or to, to create more money, right? That was the initial idea. So we have a, a monetary system that is based on the principle of creation of money via credit, right? And this per se already increases the level of indebtedness of the economy. So if you have a monetary system such as ours, by definition, you might say, there's much more debt in this economy than you would otherwise have. But then comes into play a second factor, and the second factor is even more powerful and it has sprung into full force in the 20th century. And this factor works through the uh, tendency of um, uh, money creation to entail positive price inflation rates. This was not the case in the 19th century. So in the 19th century, we had a fiat monetary system, right? government money was imposed on the economy and so on. But... Uh, the uh, money creation and uh, credit expansion was kept within such limits that uh, there was no permanent positive price inflation rate. And right? so they, the money supply was increased, but not increased sufficiently strong so as to increase uh, a permanent rise of the price level. Right? So by and large, the money supply was uh, increased at about the same in about the same rhythm as there was an increase of um, uh, of aggregate production, so as you had economic growth. 
Now, in the 20th century, this changes. And if you look at monetary statistics, it's a very, very uh, clear-cut uh, separation. And the, the, the crucial year which uh, there's really a change is uh, 1946, so the first post-war peace year. 1946 was the first post-war peace year in Western history in which prices continued to increase. In all previous uh, periods, war times had always been um, times when the price level increased because the governments used the printing press to finance war-related expenditure. But then as soon as you had peace, uh, this use of the printing press stopped and as a consequence, prices started to decline. Right? So he had a, a price deflationary environment uh, as a natural environment of the market economy in the US, in Britain, in Western Europe, uh, all throughout uh, the, the 19th century, and until World War II, during peace times. Now, after World War II, for the first time in uh, human history, uh, we had a permanent increase of the price level because governments continued during peacetime the very same monetary policies that before were only used in uh, war times, namely expansionary monetary policy. Now, all of this, of course, was on the rhetorical theoretical level was justified by the new Keynesian economics. But this is, uh, okay, this is uh, something that is not really of much interest for us uh, here. For us, what is interesting is, so we have this new situation in which the price level increases permanently, foreseeably so. Now, in such a situation, there is a very strong incentive for people to go into debt. And this incentive holds true for all sectors of the economy. It holds true for governments or for the public sector. It holds true for companies. And it holds true for private households. Think of the situation of a private household, which is probably most familiar to um, um, people listening to this show. Uh, most young people, when they get out of uh, school, so they graduate from a university and so on, they get a job. First thing they do they, is they take out a credit if they have, I mean, they already have another one uh, for, to, to finance their studies. But so they get out of school and then rather than paying back uh, their, their their credit only and then accumulating equity capital, they take out another loan in order to buy a house. Why is this so? Well, because. At the beginning, when you take out the credit, uh, then the service, the debt service represents a relatively high share of your income. But in the course of time, in, in a price inflationary environment, all prices go up. That is, your revenue will also go up. Now, if you take out a fixed interest loan, then uh, the amount of money that you have to pay back each month stays the same, but your revenue increases. Therefore, you have a strong incentive to go into debt now and as much as possible into debt now uh, in order uh, to uh, uh, enrich yourself right through this uh, price inflationary process. So this is what all households do. And firms act uh, in exactly the same way and for still other reasons that we might discuss later, uh, and governments do the same thing. right? A government goes very heavily into debt in a price inflationary environment because it can expect uh, tax uh, revenue to increase in the future, so therefore the debt burden will grow ever uh, uh, lighter um, because of the price inflationary process. right? So in a fiat money system that produces constant price inflation rates, you get 
necessarily a debt economy. And this is what we see in the figures, right? After World War II, the tendency was very, very clear-cut, right? All sectors of the economy get ever more into debt. Now, of course, a debt economy, a debt-loaden economy, uh, has very different uh, cultural features than an economy based on equity that is, uh, is not debt-ridden. Right. Uh, think, for example, of the fact uh, that people in a debt economy, they are, of course, always dependent uh, on the banker. They are de dependent that other people will give them more money. Some people think this is a good thing, and it certainly to some extent it increases right, the social bonds that, that exist between uh, different strata of the population. But it certainly creates dependency and despondency uh, to an extent that we didn't have in the 19th century. It creates not only material dependence, but therefore also intellectual dependence, uh, emotional, mental dependence, right? You're no longer your own man. Uh, then think of, of a company uh, that is heavily indebted. It will make also its business decisions in a different way than a company that operates just with, it, with its own money. A debt-ridden company will try to avoid risk the risks that a debt-free company might take. A debt-free company, for example, does not necessarily need to have revenue every quarter, right? Does not need to show results immediately. So it can forego uh, profits for a few years uh, and then engage in activities that will bring about important fruit only five or seven years down the road. If you're heavily indebted, this is out of the question. You need to satisfy your uh, your creditors. You need to reassure your creditors by showing constant revenue. So this precludes from the outset that you engage in this and that uh, activity. You need to focus on activities that bring in constant revenue. So that, right? It's not necessarily this is good or bad from a moral point of view, but it's very different as compared to what we would have uh, in a debt-free economy. One of the points I've made for years is a point that I now realize I imbibed from your book without remembering. So I've been presenting it not necessarily as my own creation, but without citing anybody. And that is that under a regime like this, even when inflation, you know, when we think of it as price inflation, is relatively low as it is today, well, even relatively low price inflation accumulated over a number of years amounts to a pretty substantial erosion of your purchasing power. Exactly. Even in this situation, you have real uh, consequences for the average person, and that has to do with how the average person saves for the future. Because in the old days, under precious metal system, when the precious metals were you know, circulated as money, then those precious metals maintained or even increased their purchasing power over time. So you needed to do nothing other than simply accumulate them. But today, you'd be a moron to just accumulate Federal Reserve notes. They're going to lose a huge chunk of their value by the time you retire. Right. So instead, it means you have to spend your time engaged in speculation, which in turn means you're doing things you're not trained to do, which means you're constantly – you're even more worried about money than you would otherwise be. Yes. You're preoccupied with money to a degree you would not be otherwise. A very good point. Yes. Yeah. So, so I appreciate you – because – in particular, the point about being preoccupied with money when we're accused as free market people of being people who think about nothing other than money. But in fact, it's the more you get away from the market system, the more people are obsessed with money. Of course, in socialist societies, when people are poor, you're obsessed with every scrap you can get so that you can stay alive in reasonable dignity. 
It's only when you reach a level of wealth where your basic needs are met that you can afford to think about non-monetary goods. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I know f few people who are more materialistic than people are working actually for, for, for governments, right? Very often there's an excessive uh, attention to the material aspects. And there's also much envy, right? Uh, is, is this guy has reached a pay class uh, higher than mine, uh, earlier uh, than myself and, and so on and so on, right? So it's true, right? So uh, things like greed, uh, avarice, envy and so on are certainly not uh, particular features of a market economy. And as you have said, there are very good um, reasons to argue that actually if you have a purely free economy uh, in which the market is free to operate, uh, such excesses, such moral excesses and, and, and vices uh, like greed and avarice actually tend to be contained to a larger extent than in our current uh, situation in which we have monetary interventionism, which spurs, encourages, remunerates uh, such vices rather than uh, refrain them. And then you say in your book that people will tend to prolong the phase of their lives in which they strive to earn money, and they will place relatively greater emphasis on monetary returns than on any other criterion in choosing their profession. Yeah. For example, some of those who would rather be inclined to gardening will nevertheless seek industri an industrial employment if the latter offers greater long-run monetary returns, and so on. So that's also very interesting. Yeah. Um, it's a necessary consequence of the, of the debt economy, right? So if you are in debt, just like for a firm about which I talked to you before, right? It's, the, it's ultimately it's the same mechanism. You have to make sure that the money is on the table when you have to pay back or you have to serve your loan. So therefore, this colors all of your life choices. Indeed. Now, before we proceed, there is one economic question I want to ask, just as long as we're on the subject. When you were talking about, or, well, I was saying that you could just accumulate money and just – that could be your nest egg for your retirement. You don't have to worry that hmm. it's going to lose purchasing power. So in order to maintain that, I need to invest it in stocks and bonds or whatever. Um, but so one argument that people have made against this is to say, well, if you can get an adequate return from just sitting on the cash – then a lot of people will just sit on the cash instead of investing it. Hmm. So you're not going to get the kind of growth that we would have in a fiat system where the inflation nudges them into having to invest it. Yeah. Now, this is an important argument. It's wrong, right? And it's it's very important to understand why it's wrong. The hoarding of money, right, has, of course, been denounced since time immemorial. And it's really at, at the bottom of this argument. It's, it's, it was the, the basic premise of uh, the whole of, of Keynes' uh, philosophy, economic philosophy, right? That uh, the true motor of economic development is the spending of money. So if you're uh, just sitting on your money or hoarding money, this might be good for yourself, but it's a sterile form of saving that does not benefit the rest of the economy. Now, this is wrong because the, the hoarding of money has very different social implications than the hoarding of any other good. In the, the case of any other good, if you're, let's say, uh, you're, uh, you're a farmer and you have sheep. And if you just like to look at your sheep and, and, and pat them and uh, whatever, so you, you, you're never selling them on the market, but then actually you are really the only person who will benefit from this, from them. Right? You are the only person uh, to, to, to have them. All our people are deprived of this. 
And the same thing holds true for all other resources, right? If you keep other things just for uh, yourself rather than using in them in a productive process rather than, than, than selling them to other people, well, it's just really just for you and others are deprived of it. In the case of money, that's not the case. And the reason is that uh, the, the hoarding of money has an impact on the price level and therefore on the purchasing power of all other money units that are being used. If a significant part of the population uh, increases uh, its um, cash hoards, right? So people, rather than spending their dollars, they're just keeping them, let's say, under the mattress, under the proverbial mattress. So there's uh, less. there would be less dollars in circulation. As a consequence, the price level would tend to drop. Right? If there's less money in circulation, money becomes more scarce relative to all other goods. So therefore, less money will be exchanged against all those other goods. Prices will diminish. As the price level diminishes, uh, the purchasing power of all other money units that are still being used increases. So these other people can, in exchange for their money, obtain more goods and services than they could uh, before, thanks to the hoarding of those others. So, you see, if you're hoarding money, uh, you cannot avoid providing additional purchasing power to other people. It's almost as though you had given them uh, a credit, except that there is no credit, right? It's, the mechanism is, is different, but the result is the same, right? Or at least it's, it's very similar. If I can hand over a credit to another person, then he profits from the fact that I've saved. Now he can spend the money. If I hoard money, well, then other people's purchasing power uh, uh, increases. So it's as though I had given them a part of my money to uh, to spend. Now, the big difference uh, between the two uh, cases is that in the case of credit, of course, what we do is to hand over our savings in a concentrated form to this person rather than to another one. So he can really have a, our savings have a significant impact on this and that other market participant. Whereas if we hoard, it has a very minor, small impact on a great number of people, right? And on all, all other market participants. So the positive impact is diluted and is often barely uh, perceptible. But the, the principle remains, right? The hoarding of money is uh, not something that would just benefit uh, the, the saver himself. It's necessarily something that benefits other people. Uh, and so, th so we see that since you brought up the, the example, the, the, the great importance of um, uh, precious metals-based monetary system is that precisely it encourages savings rather than uh, consumptive expenditure. And as a consequence, other people benefit from the savings, right? The economy as a whole benefits uh, from these savings without debt, right? It's very different. So it's, it's, it's a much healthier way of uh, bringing savings to the benefit of the rest of the economy than in our current debt-based monetary system. You have a section toward the end of this chapter on the welfare state, which you say would not really have been able to reach the size that it has in the absence of inflation. Yeah. So I'd like to, first of all, hear if you can justify that statement. And then secondly, let's talk about what the consequences for society of, of that have been. We're just trying to create a safety net for the most vulnerable people is what your critics would say. Hmm. 
Well, I mean, the, of course, the, the welfare state increases for the, the general reason that we have already discussed, right, as, as a consequence of this additional source of funding that comes with fiat money, the, the state, especially the central state that uh, is the privileged partner of the, the monetary authorities, grows uh, larger than all other sectors of the economy, grows lar larger than the other branches of government, but also than the private sector. Now, uh, the The government, therefore, can spend more money on its own agenda. Now, this agenda might be a European-style welfare state or it might be an American-style warfare state, right? So, both the warfare state increases and the welfare state increases. Uh, in the U.S., you're catching up on, on the welfare uh, segment, right? so you're not lagging behind uh, the Europeans as much as you were uh, in, the, in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, and, of course, uh, If you uh, spend more money on welfare, then then you produce the typical results that come with the welfare uh, state. Now, among uh, now these results are very different from the ones that are uh, usually professed by the uh, by the champions of the welfare state. So for them, the welfare state is just an instance, it's just a, 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 an organization of social uh, um, solidarity among the members of society. But of course. This is a misrepresentation because uh, solidarity is based on true concern for what other people are doing for the for, for the needs of other people, sensitivity to the needs of so you are interested in what others are doing and you're interested because it's your own money that is at, at stake, right? If I have a poor neighbor and he needs my assistance, well, then, uh, of course, uh, I need to be interested because so he, he asked for my assistance. Well, uh, of course, I don't want to waste my money. So, uh, first of all, I, I really want to know something about his situation to understand what his problem is, what are his prospects uh, before I make such an engagement. And my continued engagement is based on such continued uh, understanding of, of his own situation. And it also creates some sort of a friendship, right? Friendship between uh, the, the benefactor and the, uh, and, and the donee. Um, in a welfare state, that's very different because um, in, a, in a welfare state, the assistance that people obtain is an enforceable legal claim on the state or if you wish on the, on the community. Now, this uh, already from the outset produces the very opposite of solidarity. It produces um, avarice. Uh, irresponsibility on both sides, right? Benefactor and donee. The benefactor is no longer uh, concerned because he cannot avoid, he cannot help funding these other guys. But so since he can avoid it, it's not his decision to make. He uh, so he grows indifferent vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, these other people, and the uh, the benefactors them, themselves they uh, become irresponsible because they have a legally enforceable claim, so they do not have to make any adjustments uh, to their behavior which some of them uh, uh, can make and which they would make if they dependent, uh, depended on voluntary contributions from neighbors, friends, associates, and, and so on. So you get something very different. You don't get uh, increased national solidarity. You get uh, a world of irresponsibility and indifference. Right? These are the main consequences of the welfare state. Uh, so social relations do not flourish, but uh, become uh, uh, they're not warm. Right? They become cold and, and, and uh, indifferent, very different from what we had in the, in the 19th century. Let me close with this. Your chapter uses the word cultural in the name. So when we look over these different ways, and you have others we haven't gotten to in your chapter, that fiat inflation affects the way 
people behave, the way people look at the world, the values they hold, all the sorts of, a lot of things that go to make up what a person really is all about. How do they also apply to areas of life that we would more properly refer to as culture? Oh, you mean um, uh, like the performing arts and, and painters and so on? You mean this? Is there anything there? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think, uh, for example, today, of course, the, uh, the government is a large uh, purchaser, right, of uh, of uh, of artwork, right? especially if you think of uh, theater, opera, and so on. Very often, this is uh, this is state run painters and so on, right? So the government is the largest purchaser in the market. And of course, this colors the the, the the type of works that are being produced. And many artists are very sensible uh, to this and they, they abhor of, of the consequences, right? You have to deal with, with bureaucrats who often have a very completely uh, ideological approach to art, right? So they, they want to... Um, put into practice, implement in practice certain abstract conceptions that they have about what art is and should be. So one of the main uh, driving forces of what art is and always has been from the midst of times, namely beauty, becomes rele- or gets relegated to a completely secondary place. Right? So uh, as we always say, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Well, I do not completely agree with this. But um, right, so the, in any case, if you have a bureaucratic organization that purchases art and commissions works of art, uh, con- considerations of beauty become completely secondary. What becomes uh, primordial is whether it pleases the, the, the patrons, which are also the higher up in the bureaucratic uh, echelons, uh, and maybe the, the average consumer, right? So, so the average voter. Uh, but uh, aesthetic value and, and, and beauty becomes completely secondary. And this is what why, why we see so much ugly uh, sculptures, uh, so many ugly sculptures, so many ugly paintings, uh, such horrible architecture all over the place. I think it's definitely, it's a consequence of the fact that government is uh, massively involved in the art business. Wow, there is so much, there's so much to say, it turns out, about inflation that isn't what you'll find in a typical textbook. Yes. It, it spills over into civil society in ways that most people miss and even professional economists have little to say about or are maybe even unaware of. So you're a pioneer, Guido Holzman. Thank you very much, sir. Very important work. So, of course, people should read. Now, that's just one chapter, by the way. Yes. What we've talked about is one portion of one chapter of the ethics of money production. By the time you get done with this thing, you're you're going to be a lethal weapon in the world of ideas. I'll put it that way. <laughs> so you should read it. I'm going to link to it at tomwoods.com slash 1180. That's 1180. You can read it online for free. You can buy a hard copy, which is what I have because I can't read things online. It makes me crazy. But either way, you'll want to read this and you will feel like you're the king of the world because you'll have knowledge that even the economists don't have. And that's a nice position to be in. Guido, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure, Tom. All right, folks, remember, Free and Open to the Public is a tremendous event going on June 30th, 2018 in New Orleans. Scott Horton will be there, as will Michael Bolden, Dave Smith, Jordan Page, Eric July with Backwards, Murray Sabrin, a whole bunch of people you've heard on this show are all going to be there, and it's going to be a tremendous time supporting the Mises Caucus. 
So check that out at takehumanaction.com, and I hope to see you there. I also hope to see you aboard the Contra Cruise. Check it out at contracruise.com. The best libertarian week of the year. Well, certainly the best libertarian week on water, but I would say arguably of the whole year. It's a tremendous time. Uh, come basically take your vacation with me and with a whole bunch of other folks you are going to become lifelong friends with. Check out the details at ContraCruise.com, and I'll see you next week. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. All right. Well, thank you, Guido. I'll see you next month. And thank you, Clay, for doing this. Yeah. Hey, Tom, by the way, I uh, last uh, month I uh, met, uh, did I tell you this? I met, uh, this, there comes a student walks into my office at Grove City College and he said, he said he had listened to our show, uh, the last show on the Tom Woods show. And he said, well, oh. he said this, he must admire all people who are in the Tom Woods show. It's one of his highest aims in life <laughs> to, to make it to the Tom Woods show. I said, wow. Okay. So just, <laughs> you got to, <laughs> Something out of this, yeah. So <laughs> here you were thinking it was receiving academic awards or being in scholarly societies. <laughs> Turns out that's all been in vain. Yeah. What you really needed was this. Well, I'm glad that I've, I've uh, yeah made this jump this barrier already. <laughs> that's great. To, I wish we had said that on the air. That's funny. Okay, all right. I'll see you later. Thanks yeah. a lot. Bye bye, Tom. Okay, bye.